your Bibles to the Old Testament prophet Micah, which is about seven books back to your left from the Gospel of Matthew, if you need to find it rather quickly. If you, can, if you don't have a Bible with you, you can use one of the chairback Bibles that should be in front of you, and you'll find our text this morning on page 779. It's our something of a traditional practice here at Redeemer. When we get to that Lord's Day before Christmas, we take a break from our ongoing a series in the morning to think about the incarnation of our Lord. And so we break from our ongoing series through John's gospel this morning to turn to one of these wonderful and quite famous prophecies about the Savior, the ruler who would come. And what we want to look at together is chapter 5 in Micah, verse 2, through the first phrase of verse 5. So let me read that passage for us and Then pray for the Lord's blessing and we'll begin together. So do listen once again as God speaks to you through his faithful word. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me, one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient days. Therefore he shall give them up until the time... When she who is in labor has given birth, and then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel, and he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall dwell secure. For now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Let's pray once again. Father, we know that the time is coming and even is now here in part when the nations will praise your great name. We know that the earth is full of your steadfast love and we ask that you would deal with us today, we who are your servants, that you would deal with us according to that love, that you would teach us your word, your promises would come to our hearts, promises that are righteous forever. By your spirit, do give us understanding that we might live Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, in whose name we pray, amen. Or you may be seated. I recently came across an article on the state of the American church in 2023, as these things often go at the end of a calendar year. Certain people and journalists and perhaps even experts begin to discern what trends or what troubles might mark the a church in our nation, and uh, this article began by asking the question simply, is there a crisis of leadership in the church? And the question came from a series of events that the author had come to realize only hit the newswire in preceding weeks. Story of one pastor who suddenly and unexpectedly resigned because for many years he had been full of bullying and dictatorial authority behind the scenes. Then he came across another resignation, this of a pastor who was arrested for driving under the influence and the unlawful carrying of a handgun while in the car with minors. Then there's another pastor who resigned after allegations of abuse and was subsequently arrested. Then there was a pastor who, after nine years of being arrested for lewd behavior in a public place, that arrest record became public and he resigned suddenly. And so you can understand why this author takes that question, takes that evidence, 
and says at the end, yes, there is a crisis of leadership in the American church. And I wouldn't put myself in that category. I don't think there's a crisis of leadership in the church. The church is full of many faithful and fruitful pastors that never hit the newswire. I do think, however, that there is a crisis of trust in leadership that's writ large across our nation as we have come to think quite differently about authority in a variety of ways. And you might even sit in here today perhaps distrustful for valid, maybe invalid reasons, distrustful of authorities in your life, political, social, vocational, even ecclesiastical authorities, so skeptical you might be that whenever you come across someone who has God-given authority or is in a place of leadership, you think there's no way that that person could possibly be above reproach, be worthy of trusting. And I tell you that because where we come to in Micah's prophecy tonight is a prophecy that's given to the northern kingdom of God's people which at this very moment is a nation enduring a genuine crisis of leadership. I think it's probably true, don't you, that not many Christians today and church members know much about Micah's prophecy. It's quite often hard for people to find him in the Bible. His name simply means who is like the Lord, who is like Yahweh. It's a statement of God's incomparability and much as these things often go with Old Testament prophets, his, his name tends to paint something of a picture about the kind of ministry he would have in delivering the Lord's word. Because if you read through Micah's chapters, what you'll find him extolling is God's sovereignty over his people, God's incomparability in his character, and even quite significantly as it comes to our text tonight, this royalty that he is promising in the future. And Micah was one of these prophets that not only prophesied the downfall of the northern kingdom, he actually experienced it and observed the siege of the Assyrians there upon the Holy Land in the north. And part of the reason that they are undergoing God's judgment, as is so often the case in Old Testament prophecies, is again, there's a, there's a crisis of leadership in the land. Students, if you want to know how bad it was, just go back with me to Micah chapter 3 and look at verse 9, 10, and 11. The Lord speaking through Micah says in this passage, chapter 3, verse 9 through 11, Hear this, you heads of the house of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel, who detest justice and make crooked all that is straight, who builds Zion with blood and Jerusalem with iniquity, its heads, that being rulers or kings, its heads give judgment for a bribe. Its priests teach for a price. Its prophets practice divination for money, yet they lean on the Lord and say, Is not the Lord in our midst? No disaster shall come upon us. So what Micah is saying there, children, is that the kings are bad. The priests are bad. The prophets are bad. It's all bad. Very bad when it comes to leaders in the land. And it's in that context that chapter 4 begins and begins to speak about this coming kingdom. And of course, it gets us to chapter 5, our text, which is not about the coming kingdom as much as it is about the coming king. Because if you notice again, chapter 5, verse 2 in the middle, he says, Someone is coming from Bethlehem, and it shall come, he shall come forth for me. 
is what Yahweh says. So just as in the Old Testament story of Israel, he placed a king after his own heart, David, over his people. Here comes another one we're going to find out in the Davidic line for the Lord. The king after God's own heart. We want to see something about the ruler in the little town this morning is what we are after. And there's something of a centering Reality that I hope this text might find in your heart because in ways you surely haven't noticed before, uh, Micah is actually quite central in the book of 12, the minor prophets in the Old Testament. Micah lies at the very center. At the very center of Micah is chapter 4 and 5, which is uh, prophecy about restoration from the devastation. And then right there at the center of that center is a prophecy about a ruler born in Bethlehem. So students, if you follow at the very center of the center of the center of the minor prophets is the text that's right before us. And so surely the Spirit would want to find a centering power, this prophecy about Jesus Christ to come to your heart's affection and mind's attention. And let us just even recognize it right from the outset before we begin our study of these verses that we're in a proper place speaking about these verses as depicting for us the Savior, Christ Jesus. You might know in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 2, these mysterious magi, they come from the east, and they come to Herod, and they say, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? And Herod's all agitated. The text says that Jerusalem as a whole is disturbed too, and Herod goes to the Old Testament experts there in Jerusalem and says, okay, where's the king of the Jews going to be born, guys? And they say, well, Micah chapter 5, verse 2, says the king of the Jews is going to be born in in Bethlehem. And then Matthew begins to spin out that portion of his Christmas account. So as we're thinking about this text, you'll notice it comes really in two distinct halves because it begins first with the attributes of the coming king before it turns to the actions that he will perform. It's thinking about his characteristics before his commitments And so as we sketch out with this scripture pencil something of the Savior who's on the way, what we want to look at, first of all, is who he will be and then what he will do. That's simply what we want to look at this morning, who he will be and what he will do. And you'll see who he will be. It begins with a contrast. Notice again, verse 2 says, But you, O Bethlehem. So students, you recognize a contrast right there. But you. And it's in clear contrast, notice to what he has just said in verse 1 of chapter 5. Now muster your troops, O daughter of troops. That's Jerusalem is what he's saying there. Siege is laged against us. With a rod they shall strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. It's a very prophetic way of speaking about how the Assyrians mocked the ruler Hezekiah in that time when they laid siege to Jerusalem. You might know the story in the Old Testament that they came and there was this incredible conversation across the siege wall and they said, hey, we'll give you 2,000 horses, Israel, if you can find 2,000 people to ride on those horses. It's a strike of sarcasm against the cheek and in that significant city, Micah saying, the ruler's going to be belted. And now he turns, in contrast, to an insignificant city, Bethlehem. And from there, the ruler will be born. Because notice how verse 2 continues. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me, 
one is going to be ruler in Israel. Some of you have been at Redeemer long enough to know that our family's pattern for a number of years now has been in the summer months. We uh, tend to spend some extended time up in the mountains of the West visiting family in Colorado. And if you've ever made that journey up there, because we tend to start out our vacation in the summer uh, visiting one of my sisters that lives in a tiny town tucked away in far northeast Colorado. And so to get there, you just head due north out of Texas on I-35, and you keep going and going and going until you get past uh, Salina, Kansas, and then you just hang a left and go left on I-70 through the windy wilderness that is Kansas. And once you get on I-70, not long into that highway journey, what you'll see on the side of the road is a sign that says Dwight D. Eisenhower Memorial Highway. Because where we turn to the left, if you turn to the right, it's only a few miles east that you would run into Abilene, Kansas, which is the hometown of Dwight Eisenhower. And if you know anything about Dwight Eisenhower's life, it's rather amazing that someone from Abilene, Kansas would do what he did. I mean, who would have thought? Someone from the tiny town of Abilene in Kansas would lead the Allied forces in the European theater in World War II and defeat Hitler. Who would have thought that someone from that tiny town would become one of the most popular presidents in U.S. history? Well, what the Lord is prophesying here through Micah is, who would have thought that the ruler would come from Bethlehem? The text says it's, it's not even great enough to be numbered among the towns of Judah. You'll find these Old Testament lists where it speak about cities and towns in the promised land. One particularly in Joshua that lists off 46 different towns. And you won't find Bethlehem mentioned at all. It's altogether politically insignificant. And what it's telling us about who this ruler will be is that he will come from humility. He'll come from Bethlehem. He doesn't come from that power of the world when he arrives, which is Rome. He doesn't come from that glory of the spiritual land in Israel, Jerusalem. He comes from Bethlehem. And kids, if you know the story of Christ's coming, it's not just the town that underscores the humility of his arrival. Of course, he comes not in a royal setting, like a kingly palace. He goes to Bethlehem, and there's no inn for him. We're, of course, not talking about the Ritz-Carlton equivalent in Bethlehem. There's not even a Motel 6 for him in Bethlehem. He's not laid in a plush, comfortable baby cradle in a palace, but a wooden, perhaps even a stone manger, a feeding trough, and a stable of beasts. He's not wrapped in royal garb and clothes, but threadbare swaddling cloths. He's not praised with this mighty army of kingly Accordions, but poor and lowly shepherds hearing the song of peace on earth, goodwill to men. And isn't it just like the Lord to take an insignificant town and bring forth his significant purposes? Doesn't the Lord love to use nobodies from nowhere? to turn them into somebodies who know someone that begin to do his work. Because, of course, if he's going to take this little town of Bethlehem and bring forth from Bethlehem his ruler, who gets the glory? God. Who gets the power? God. Who gets the greatness? 
God, to whom belong all authority, wisdom, and splendor. God, who'll come in humility. But you notice also he'll come in covenant fidelity. And what I mean by that is how verse 2 continues. Notice it says, From you shall come forth for me, one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient days. You might have a translation in front of you that actually speaks with that final phrase of coming from eternity or coming from everlasting. Uh, But in context, it really does immediately refer to the covenant that God made with David from ancient days because the time Jesus shows up, he who is the son of David, for centuries, no Davidic king has sat on the throne. It will seem as though this upstart comes from nowhere and God is saying, no, his coming is from ancient days of covenant fidelity. And the reason we can say that is because do you know who is, before Jesus is born at least, who is the most famous person to come from Bethlehem, Ephrathah? King David. It was the only reason Bethlehem was significant in the Old Testament. David came from Bethlehem. And now Jesus comes from Bethlehem. And in that gospel passage in Matthew chapter 2, which is the story of fulfillment of this promise, how does Matthew's gospel begin? But telling us this is the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David. That God is faithful to all of his promises. Every single one is yes and amen in Christ Jesus. So he comes from humility. He comes in covenant fidelity. I do think we can say, however, certainly theologically we can agree with some of the older translations that say he also comes from eternity. Here is the king who comes that doesn't have an origin story, students. He's without beginning. He's without end. He's the Alpha and the Omega. And when you take all of this truth together, you realize that Jesus Christ comes in that most mysterious, yet gospel, glorious reality of one person, two distinct natures forever. He is the God-man from eternity and in humility. And your very salvation depends on the God-man coming forth and fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. Because, of course, if sinners like you who deserve God's punishment and penalty for sin you have done, if there's to be found a substitute for sinners like you, that substitute must be a true human. But no ordinary human can offer an everlasting, eternal, pleasing sacrifice as he suffers under God's wrath for sin and brings forward a reward of grace and glory to his own, but Jesus Christ, who is the God-man. And you would think, of course, as Micah is writing this, it seems like in context here in chapter 5, that Jerusalem is in the midst of a siege. You know, it's under trouble. The Assyrians are attacking. It seems as though they're going to be yanked out of the promised land. They've even heard that already from Micah. That you hear this glorious ruler that's soon going to come from Bethlehem, who he will be. And you would think, well, bring him now. But notice verse 3, the Lord says, not so fast. Therefore, he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. That's just depicting that time, isn't it? That Israel is going to be exiled until this ruler is going to be born of a woman. And then he's going to begin the work of reconciliation, a restoration, reuniting God's people. 
If you know anything about the timing of Micah, the Lord is essentially saying something like, you're going to wait for 700 years for that ruler to come. Can you imagine what an ordinary church member would feel today if the Lord came to you and said, here's my promise, the king of kings, the answer to all your troubles is on the way in 700 years. It wouldn't provide a whole lot of comfort, would it? But apparent delays in God's plan, of course, according to his divine wisdom, are purposeful, even perfect delays. How often do you feel yourself in the Christian life found in something of a spiritual waiting room? I'm sure many of you know that waiting rooms are not a fun place to be. You have stories, don't you, of sitting in a waiting room at a hospital, sitting in a waiting room at the Department of Motor Vehicles. Stress increases, frustration increases. And here's what God is saying to his beloved people of old wait. He's on the way. But I would have you consider this morning, even from this first part of our text, how God's waiting rooms, as he fulfills his promises in your life, are gracious to you. For how would you learn how to trust in his perfect word if you weren't made to wait for it? How would you learn to understand that he is faithful if you weren't made to wait for it? That through every trial and trouble and tribulation, that he is steadfast in his mercy to his people. If you weren't tried out in the waiting. So who will he be? Well, he'll come from humility. He'll come in covenant fidelity. He'll come from eternity. What will he do? Well, that's where the text continues. In verse 4, it says, Notice he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord. You know, our nation is getting ready, isn't it, for a presidential election that's going to come later on next year. And as the political pundits and pollsters are doing their expert-like work, they're not only looking at the strengths and weaknesses of each potential candidate, they're even guessing what parts of that person's platform will be foregrounded in his campaign for the presidency. And if you were to ask, what's this ruler from Bethlehem going to do? What's his platform in his authority? Well, the Lord begins by saying, first of all, he shall stand and he shall shepherd. Stand is this original word that really spoke of authority in a regal sense. It was unshakable. It was firm. It depicts really a king at his coronation standing in his authority for all to see. He'll stand. Uh, students, he also says that this coming ruler in Bethlehem will shepherd. You may not know in the ancient Near Eastern culture, it was, it was an ideal even of worldly kings to be understood as a shepherd of the people. Oftentimes, worldly kings depicted with a shepherd's staff because they were meant to lead their flock. And all throughout the Old Testament, one of the most favorite ways that God speaks of his relationship to his people is that he is their shepherd and the they are his sheep. But you'll find it even in Micah and other Old Testament uh, prophetic ministries. One of the central reasons that God has these grievances against his old covenant people is that they're full of bad shepherds. Uh, shepherds who, who should have healed the sick haven't done so. Shepherds who should bind up the injured, they haven't done so. Given strength to the weak, sought the lost. None of these shepherds have done so is what he says. So he says, I will come. And do the shepherding work. And we know he does that, of course, through Jesus Christ, who is 
is the good shepherd. And you'll notice the strength that belongs to his shepherding ministry. You see that he will shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord. He doesn't come in his own might and power. Perhaps it gives us something of a window into those majestic texts in the gospel where we find Jesus departing, disappearing to quiet places to pray and have communion with God. Why? He will stand and he will shepherd in the Lord's strength, the supply of the Spirit. That's why other prophets can say, it's not by might nor by power, declares the Lord, but by my Spirit that things will be done to glorify Him. You know, if the sinless Son of God needed disappearing, departing times of communion with God, that He might stand and shepherd in God's strength, don't you think that you too might need disappearing and departing times? whatever that might look like in your own home and context, to feast upon the Lord's strength, to do what He has called you to do. But what will He do? He will, of course, lead in majesty. That's really the summary of it. Notice how the text continues in verse 4. He will stand, He will shepherd, not just in the strength of the Lord, but in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. Majesty, in its original form, it kind of depicts towering, tall realities. And so when it's ascribed to the Lord in certain ways, he's majestic because in his towering might, he's thrown horse and rider into the sea. In his, his towering ability, he, he takes the surging seas and, and gives them their place. But you'll see again here in our text, it says he will, he will shepherd, he will stand in the majesty of the Lord's name. But there's this towering glory that belongs to the Lord's name that, of course, is placed upon Jesus Christ who receives the name that is above all names because of his perfect obedience. He will lead in majesty. And children, I'm sure you know the power that a name has. I mean, I certainly learned that lesson early on when I was a child, when I was doing things I ought not to do. Uh, all mom had to say in order to get me going back on the right path, was this. When dad comes home. That's it. Just mention the name. Dad will be here soon. You will have to speak with dad when he gets back tonight. The mention of a name can change everything, can't it? And here is a standing shepherd who rules in majesty and might according to the Lord's name. But he doesn't just lead in majesty. You'll notice... As the text ends, he brings security. Look at verse 4 at the end. And they shall dwell secure. I mean, it would have been an immense comfort, wouldn't it have been, to these original hearers that were undergoing an Assyrian siege. You shall know security. But of course, security really doesn't mean a whole lot if you're just secure within your walls not secure against threats from the outside. That this nation from the outside is coming into the Holy Land and oppressing God's people, laying siege to that holy, beloved city of Zion. But the text goes on to say that the security that this ruler will bring, Jesus Christ will bring, will extend to all the ends of the earth. Look at the end of the passage, in verse 4 at least. They shall dwell secure. For now he shall be great to the ends of the earth. Every nation will bow before this king. All the enemies worldwide that this king has will one day be defeated. It's why he can say, they will dwell secure. 
That's interesting how this even works out in Matthew's gospel, that passage of fulfillment in Micah chapter 5. Because the very first people, and it ought to strike you because Matthew is the most Jewish of all the gospel authors. He has, in his telling of Christ's coming, the first people arriving to praise him come from the east. They come from outside of the covenant country. They come probably from the land of Babylon. The nations come to worship the king. Why? Because the king has come to subdue the nations unto himself. And that same gospel ends with the great commission, doesn't it? That now in virtue of his authority being received from heaven that he commissions his people to go make disciples of all nations that his people might dwell secure. But students, you might think, well, it's not terribly secure still, is it? I mean, I still lock my car. I still lock my door if I leave. I set the alarm at home. It's not really that secure, is it? Enemies still exist. Threats still abound. Well, there's this already not yet reality, isn't it? I mean, even verse 5, you notice says, He shall be their peace. You might know that the Apostle Paul takes up this very language in Ephesians chapter 2 and says, Christ came and preached peace to those who are far off and peace to those who are near. That he's taken these people at war with God, sinners like you, who deserve his just condemnation. Enemies of God, he has turned into friends of God and children of God because he himself is our peace. Maybe you know that one of the sweetest blessings that belong to those who possess Jesus Christ in faith is that they have peace on earth as it is in heaven, waiting for that final security. So who will this Lord from the little town be? Well, he comes in humility. He comes to keep covenant fidelity, and he does come from eternity. He will lead in majesty. He will bring Security. Of course, the question is really, what do you do with this king? You know, one of the mightiest ministers in New England in the 19th century was a man named Phillips Brooks. He was an Episcopalian preacher. He was a giant of a man physically and spiritually. Uh, He was said to tower over six feet, eight inches tall. At the time, that was a veritable giant behind a pulpit. He was said to be one of the most Amazing preachers that could subdue anyone to the Savior. Such was the power of his rhetoric and preaching ministry. Well, in 1865, after the Civil War ended, his congregation sent him to a year-long sabbatical. And Phillips Brooks spent most of that sabbatical abroad. He crossed the oceans and made his way through Europe. And eventually, he came down to the Holy Land and he rode a horse down to Bethlehem. He happened to be in Bethlehem on Christmas Eve of that year. And as you maybe would expect if you knew Brooks well enough, he went to a worship service at an ancient basilica that Christmas Eve night. It began at 10 p.m. It did not end till 3 a.m. And Brooks' account of that worship service was that it was filled with just this moving, constant hymnody and singing of the Savior's praises. So moved was he about this ruler to be born in Bethlehem that he came back to America and he took up his pen And he wrote a hymn for children in his church that you know as O Little Town of Bethlehem. That's one way, that's a good way, of responding to the Lord in the little town to sing his praises. 
But as we close, what I want to do is take you again. You don't need to turn there because it's easy enough to summarize. Matthew's passage of gospel fulfillment of this prophecy and see how even in those first 11 verses of Matthew chapter 2, you see the three ordinary responses to a king born in Bethlehem. The first is this. You could respond with enmity. Enmity. The mysterious magi, they show up and they say, Herod, where's the king? The king that's been born king of the Jews. Herod, of course, if you know the story, freaks out. So much so that he decides to decree the murder of every male child in Bethlehem under the age of two. Such as his hostility to a Lord that would command him to bow. He who actually was called Herod himself. According to secular authorities, king of the Jews. And don't you know how our country seems to go with each passing year into more noticeable enmity towards a savior who was born in Bethlehem? But that might actually belong to your heart in ways you haven't understood. The Lord comes because he is the Lord of lords and the King of kings and he summons you to lay down your life before him, to take up your cross, deny yourself and follow him. And you think with bitterness and anger, why would I ever do that? You can respond with enmity. Secondly, perhaps even more common in our context, is you can respond with apathy. Now Herod goes to these Old Testament experts, the chief priests and the scribes there in Jerusalem, and says, well, where is the king to be born, this king of the Jews that the magic men are talking about? And they say, oh, it's over in Bethlehem. Micah said that centuries ago. But as Matthew records the story, not one single chief priest or scribe would make the short five-mile journey to Bethlehem to see if he was actually born. They're careless and indifferent to the news of a Savior that has come. These who could quote Micah 5, 2 through 5 from memory. And how many people even can fill up churches on Lord's Days like today? They know so much of the Bible. Maybe they grew up being taught the catechism. And yet they're totally indifferent, apathetic to who he really is. Perhaps even some of you, certainly it belongs to many churches in our context, people will flood into churches today because it's a special holy day in the cultural calendar, thinking that just a singular appearance on a Sunday might do them some spiritual good when the rest of their life is led as though Christ is not worth it. Perhaps many people in our context can just in 90 minutes on a Sunday show devotion to the Lord and the rest of the week shows just how apathetic they are to a Savior who came. So you could have enmity. You could have apathy. You could also have certainty. Which is what we find, and we'll think about this, Lord willing, later on tonight in our evening service, the response of the wise men. They come. And no distance is too great for them to find this king because they know he has been born. No gifts are too extravagant to lay before him for the king has been found. The most unexpected people show up in the Holy Land and all of the insiders miss it. It's outsiders from the nation that have certainty about who he is. And might you be one of those people today. May you be one of those people today that knows this Lord that was born in a little town. Who he is. 
what he has done for people like you. And likewise, you might go over no small amount of distance to find him spiritually. And you might cast your very life before him in utter certainty that the ruler born in Bethlehem has come. And he stands, he shepherds in the name of his Lord. And we know his name, Jesus Christ, born of Mary in a little town called Bethlehem. Let's pray together. Father, we do ask that you would stir within us fresh joy this morning, that like those wise men of old, we would be overjoyed exceedingly with great joy at Jesus Christ, your ruler who has come to bring us into your kingdom. May we receive him by faith today, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.